bats in the house this morning. Maybe human possum. How about a human sloth? Any in the house today? What do these have in common? Besides being human, since I said human, bat, and possum, and all that. What do these animals have in common? These are all examples of animals that hang upside down. Right? Bats hang upside down. Possums do. Sloths do. There are others, but these are probably some of the more familiar animals that hang upside down. How about you? Do you ever like to hang upside down. Do any of you have that contraption in the house that you can strap yourself into that will flip you over and allow you to hang upside down? I think it's a form of medical treatment for something that you can experience. My children love to hang upside down. One of the favorite activities at home, it seems like often as they know we're getting ready for bed, is to go to the couch and get on the couch and spin themselves around so that their head is down touching the floor while their body is kind of propped up on the couch. My little ones, all of them when they've been little, Addie right now, enjoys sitting on your lap and you let her back go backwards and she hangs there upside down and you pick her up and she's chuckling and and laughing about it she enjoys it hanging upside down at this point in my life and you'd probably admit to the same hanging upside down is not something that appeals to you is that right anyone say no actually that sounds really good probably not something that appeals to us too much if you think about it, this would be true of those animals who hang upside down. It would be true of my kids that are hanging upside down. When you're hanging upside down, you see the world differently, right? I mean, everything's flipped up on its head. <laughs> what would be the floor, in a way, kind of seems like it's the ceiling, and what's the ceiling kind of, it seems like the floor, except typically your feet aren't actually touching it. But you see everything differently. And do you know the reverse is true? When you look at something or someone hanging upside down, you see them differently, don't you? It changes your perspective. It changes your focus. It, there's something different. As we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9 this morning, we're going to string together a series of accounts in Luke chapter 9 that do not seem to be connected. But I think there is a thematic connection. And I want to preach to you on this idea of upside down. Where does it come from? When I speak of being upside down, what do I mean by that? In the book of Acts, the Bible tells us about the first believers, the early Christians. 
that for the cause of Jesus, they turned the world upside down. Do you know how the early Christians turned the world upside down? The answer is that they first allowed Jesus to turn their lives upside down. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, we saw a passage where Jesus described to his disciples what committed discipleship looks like. And committed discipleship often looks different than even those of us who would say we are followers of Christ think. The committed follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ, the, the requirements, if we can call them that, are of a higher calling than you and I would choose. They are of a different focus altogether than what you and I would naturally say, well, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I shared as I preached from that passage several weeks ago, reading a book entitled Not a Fan by a pastor by the name of Kyle Eidelman. As I've continued to listen, he shared an account in one of the chapters about a man who had come to Christ through the ministry of his church. And this man in his testimony shared that he was a drinking, drug-abusing woman chaser. That was what he was. And after his family had been blown apart, his wife had left with the children, and he was now in a position of a broken family, struggling to get by as he paid his child support dues, he found Jesus. He trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior, but not only that, he began following Jesus. He was faithful to church. He got involved in ministry at the church. He told his employer, even though he needed the extra hours for the income so he could support himself and pay his child support dues, that he could no longer work on Sundays. He started giving not just a tithe, but giving generously to others in need. He started bringing others to church. He started sharing Jesus at his workplace and in the community. And it came to a place months later where this man's mother requested to meet with Pastor Eidelman. Pastor Eidelman knew that this man's family were church-going people, so he went into the meeting expecting to hear from this mother an excitement about the change that was taking place in her son. But he was shocked when instead of Worship to the Lord for the change in her son, this woman began scolding Pastor Eidelman. My son always, when we get together as a family, he wants to pray before the meals. He, he is at church all the time. He won't miss church to do something else. 
He's telling others about Jesus, and it's making those of us in the family a little uncomfortable. Pastor, would you please tell my son that following Jesus is not an all-or-nothing commitment? think that you would agree with me that the Bible presents a very different picture. Following Jesus is an all or nothing type commitment. And when you and I follow Jesus in that manner, God's Spirit turns our lives upside down. It's a complete change. It's a change of perspective. It's a change of focus. When you are a committed follower of Jesus, your life is turned upside down and you see the world differently and the world sees you differently maybe you've not experienced that maybe today as you hear me make those kind of statements you think you know I've come to Jesus I've believed in him as my savior but I've not experienced that kind of a transformation I, I have not had my life turned upside down I I don't really see the world vastly differently or the world doesn't seem to see me very differently. And perhaps this explains why some of you experience less of God than you desire to. Do you ever think things like this? You know, I, I just don't really feel God doing much in my life. And I, I can't say that I've ever sensed God doing a whole lot in my life. I don't really see God using me to, to make a difference for him. I, I don't know what it is to experience God moving me closer to himself and closer to his heart, closer to ministry, closer to service, closer to, to giving of myself for him and for others. I, I, I don't know that I've ever experienced that type of movement of God in my life and maybe the reason is you've not allowed God's Spirit to turn your life upside down. As we look at Luke chapter 9, I want us to read verses 43 through 56. And as we read these verses this morning, again, these stories don't seem connected, but I believe this thematic connection is weaved through these passages pick up in verse 43 and they were all amazed at the mighty power of god remember what's taking place as luke pens it we could talk about peter james and john and they being amazed at the mighty power of god why would they have been in luke chapter 9 remember earlier in this chapter jesus was transfigured before these three the veil of his humanity was taken back and they saw him in his divine glory and 
They were so moved to worship that Peter unwisely, foolishly said, let's build three tabernacles right here. One for you, one for Moses and Elias, Elijah, and let's just stay right here. Let's camp here and worship. And then, just prior to verse 43, a man had brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. And he, he says to Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples, but they couldn't cast him out, so I'm bringing him to you. And Jesus was able to overwhelm the power of the devil and cast that demon out. And you remember, as Jesus told the father, bring me your son, the son came and what happened? The spiritual warfare went up a notch, didn't it? The demons did more in him and, and to him than they had previously done. And we were reminded of the reality that sometimes as you get closer to Jesus, things get worse for a time. As you draw closer to Jesus, sometimes things get harder. The problem gets worse. But Jesus overwhelmed the power of the devil and, and was victorious and this is why in verse 43 we read, and they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered, everyone, at all things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, now look at what Jesus does. Let these sayings sink down in your ears. Now listen, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Then there arose a reasoning among them. Now let's make sure we understand who we're talking about now. Jesus said, let these sayings sink down into your ears. They understood not this saying. It was hid from them. They perceived it not. They feared to ask him. There arose a reasoning among them. Who are we talking about? The disciples. Specifically, the twelve. Okay, that's who we're talking about now. There arose a reasoning among them. Which of them should be the greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. And John answered and said, What's John going to say to what Jesus just said? Master! We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and set his messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? And then notice what Jesus says. 
But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what spirit ye are of. You might want to mark that in your Bible. That is a significant statement. Ye know not what spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Do you see in the text how Jesus is working to turn his disciples' lives upside down? He's trying to get them to see things differently. And as they see things differently, because their lives are turned upside down, others will see them differently. Look at it in the text. We see early on in the text, number one, that Jesus pursued his abasement. As the people are responding to what had just happened and everything Jesus has done, I mean, stories are going around, aren't they? Of all these mighty things Jesus does, all the mighty power of God that is being displayed in and through Jesus, just like when Jesus was up on that Mount of Transfiguration and Peter, James, and John were awed at what they saw, that they completely missed the conversation going on between Jesus, Elias, and Moses. Do you remember what the conversation centered on? His decease that would take place at Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John are so in awe of the mighty power and glory of Jesus that they completely missed that the topic of conversation was Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And even now here, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that this is going to happen, that this is his purpose, this is his mission. This is why in verse 51 and 52, he has his face set toward Jerusalem. He is headed there for the final time. He's going to be betrayed, turned over to the religious leaders. He's going to be rejected officially. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be beaten, and he's going to be killed. And as they are giving glory to God, as they should for the mighty works that Jesus has done, they are missing the deeper truth of his mission. And Jesus tells them, let this sink down in your ears. What does that mean? Lay this up in your heart. Hold this close. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be delivered into the hands of men. In Matthew's gospel that we read earlier in the service, Matthew tells us Jesus straightly told them, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed and buried and rise again. While they are seeking, get this, number two, advancement. Look at the difference. Jesus is being, if I can say it this way, he's being propped up by people, right? Wow, look at the great things he does. Let's make him a king. 
Let's make him our king right now. Let's put him on a throne. Let's go ahead and rebel against the Roman government. Let's go ahead and do this right now while everyone is seeking to prop Jesus up. Jesus is doing exactly what he did in the incarnation. He's humbling himself. He's bringing himself down. But what are the disciples doing? They're seeking advancement. Verse 47, this, uh, this verse 46, this reasoning, this argument, this debate uh, among them about who should be the greatest. They're arguing over this. And I've reminded you before that they're not arguing for somebody else. John is not sitting there going, you know, guys, I think Peter's going to be the right-hand guy, and here's why. No, they're all giving their own case. It's kind of like watching a political debate, right? I mean, you talk about arrogance. You talk about pride. You talk about... I'm the right one for the job, and here's why. That's what the disciples are doing. Jesus is going to make me the greatest in his kingdom, and here's why. Jesus is humbling himself. He's bringing himself down, and they are they're propping themselves up. It continues to be exemplified as this one is made aware of uh, John comes to Jesus as Jesus is trying to, to help them. Jesus is trying to change their perspective and John says, hey, you know what, Jesus? We saw this guy who was casting out demons in your name, but he doesn't follow us, so we told him to stop. Do you see the arrogance in this? It's arrogant for a number of reasons. What had just taken place? A father had brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus because what? The disciples couldn't do it. So John's feeling a little envious, isn't he? John's like, this guy's doing what we've done before, but we failed to do in this case, and I don't like it very much. John's going, this guy, he's not a part of our intimate group. Hey, maybe I could bring it up into to today's thinking and terminology. He's not a part of our church. He's not a part of our local body, so he must not be doing something right. He must be doing something wrong. What did Jesus say? Don't forbid him. If he's not against us, he's what? He's for us. If he's doing a work for me in my name... Don't forbid him. Do you see the arrogance in the disciples? And it continues further. Jesus is going to go to Samaria as he's making his way to Jerusalem. He sends messengers, perhaps it's James and John, perhaps it's somebody else, ahead of him to prepare the way, and the Samaritans don't want Jesus. That's quite an amazing change from John chapter 4, isn't it? Remember when Jesus traveled through Samaria? He stopped at Sychar, and he met the woman at the well, and, and they came out, and Jesus spent a few days there because they responded so well to him. They received him. They received his, his message. 
the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, was the first one that Jesus directly revealed himself to as the Messiah. Not to a Jew, to her and to the people of Sychar. And they received him, they received his message. He didn't have to do mighty works there because they received his words and believed him. But now this particular town won't receive him. Why? It's not because of his claim to be the Messiah. It's not even necessarily because he's a Jew. It's because he's going to Jerusalem. He's headed there. And what did James and John do? These wicked people. How dare they? They, they won't receive Jesus. They won't let him stay here. They won't let him work here. They won't let him teach here. They are kicking Jesus out. Just like we might talk about Jesus being kicked out of the schools. Jesus being kicked out of the places of public discourse. Jesus being kicked out of the, the political arena. Jesus being kicked out of different places in our culture. Jesus being kicked out and like we would often do today what did James and John say Jesus give us the authority give us the give us the permission give us the okay the go ahead to do what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel give us the authority the power to call fire down from heaven and consume them up Let's be honest. Aren't there ever times that that's kind of your thought? Oh, Jesus, if only you'd send fire down and burn up the city council. Oh, Jesus, only if you'd send fire down and burn up my tax bill. Oh, Jesus, only if you'd send fire down and, and destroy that person in leadership and, and prop up someone who would be more in line with my thinking there. Jesus, if only you would destroy all the wickedness of our community, of our city. Jesus, if only you'd send down fire and burn up all the drug dealers. Jesus, if only you'd send fire down from heaven and burn up all the prostitutes. Jesus, if only you'd send fire down from heaven and burn up all the pilots. No. Jesus. Isn't that sometimes our thinking? And we, we term it righteous indignation. Don't we? Imprecatory prayers. Have you ever prayed one? This is sometimes our thinking in response to, to our world and our society around us, isn't it? Do you see the arrogance in it? No, pastor, it's righteous indignation. I, I'm showing myself to be a good follower of Jesus. Really? Is, is that what Jesus brings out here? While Jesus is pursuing abasement, the disciples are pursuing advancement. How does Jesus respond to it? Jesus corrected his disciples' arrogance. 
what is Jesus doing? What is he working toward in his disciples' lives? You, you'll notice, won't you, that, that it wasn't the crowd that was focused on the mighty works and wanted to prop Jesus up as king that he taught. It was his disciples. It wasn't Jesus who said, hey guys, let me settle the debate and tell you who's, who's going to be the greatest. Jesus didn't say, hey John, you did the right thing in forbidding that guy. Jesus didn't say, I love the righteous indignation, James and John. No, in all of this, he, he rebuked his disciples. He's correcting a, a character flaw. He's trying to teach them and show them that your life needs to be turned completely upside down. And it wasn't happening. What did Jesus show them that they needed instead of their arrogance? Note these three characteristics. They needed humble consideration. When they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, Jesus brings a child and places a child in the midst. And he says, you know who the greatest is in the kingdom of heaven? This child. One who will become like this child. And maybe it doesn't hit us the way it hit them because children, children are esteemed for the most part, in, in our culture, in our thinking. We despise people in our culture who hurt children. You'll find that, that those who experience the most violence, even within our prison systems, are those who have abused children. They're put in with other prisoners, and other prisoners violate them because of what they've done. They're, they're despised. But that wasn't true in this culture. In both the Jewish and Greco-Roman culture, children were on the lowest rung of the social status and ladder. They were not esteemed. They, they were not thought well of like they are even to some extent in our culture today. Children were, you know, to be seen, not heard. Children were often ignored. Often the raising of the children was not even left to the mother in the household. It was left to a servant. Paul speaks about this in the book of Galatians, how uh, there was that servant who was given charge of the master's son. The, the servant was often the one who was left with making sure the child was taken care of, making sure the child was kept out of sight, making sure the child was educated, making sure the child became polite. They were not well thought of, often neglected, of little significance. And notice how Jesus completely reverses that. 
as he always did, always does. Jesus reverses the societal, cultural norms of the world. Jesus reverses the world's philosophy through the power of the gospel. And he was teaching his disciples an important truth. You're seeking advancement. You're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's not what your focus should be. You need your life turned upside down. You need to be more like me. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That is what a committed follower of Jesus focuses on. Humble consideration. It's taking a different view. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less and giving more of your thought to God and to others. It is focusing more, uh, less on a love for self and more on love for God and love for others. That's what happens when your life is turned upside down by Jesus Christ. It's not just a thinking of yourself less, humble in that way. But notice this carries over to the second characteristic, generous care. Because not only did Jesus set this child in the midst and say, Hey, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is, is this little child. Is one who becomes like a little child. But if you remember from Matthew chapter 18, Jesus also at the same time spoke to them about not offending one of these little ones. Woe to that man who offends one of these little ones, one of these children. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the deepest sea. What was Jesus trying to teach his disciples? They needed to humble themselves and they needed to be thoughtful of others and who they gave care to what is the scriptural theme throughout who, who does god express care and concern for beyond the general everybody you can go all the way back to israel's law which was revolutionary in its day some like to some skeptics like to pick apart God's law and talk about how, how God, you know, really, his law doesn't express really what, what the, even the statutes of Christianity like to present. But you've got to understand, God's law for the day was very revolutionary. God's law expressed concern and care for whose society didn't care anything about at the time. The widows. The orphans, the slaves, the neglected, the poor, the oppressed. God's focus was justice and mercy for those groups. And when Jesus takes this little 
child and senseless little child in the midst. He was teaching his disciples something about humility, but he was also teaching them something about generosity, who they should give care to and who they should focus on caring for. As we were away over these last weeks, we had the opportunity to attend several different churches and spend time with several different pastors. And one of the pastors I spent time with in Georgia, and we were talking about church and church culture and church life, and, and he shared with me that something he has noticed that is taking place in his area of sphere at least that he has seen is when people are planting churches or people are are talking about revitalizing churches they are either planting churches in or moving churches to middle upper class neighborhoods where it'll be easy to to reach some people who already have some financial stability and wealth and so on and that's what he's seen that seems to be the, the main thing. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't care about middle and upper class people, but friends, when Jesus expressed his heart to his disciples here and in other places, what was his focus? The widow. The orphan. The oppressed. The neglected, the hurting, the broken. Where's your focus? Are you okay with reaching that kind of person? Let's put it more on a spiritual level. Are you okay with reaching the drug addict and the drug dealer? Are you okay with reaching the prostitute? Are you okay with reaching the single mom? Are you okay with reaching those who, who may seem like they don't have anything much to offer? Are you okay with reaching, as I shared earlier, the, the testimony of the drinking addicted woman chaser? Are you okay with understanding that God would have you and I to express care to and for that kind of person? Reaching that kind of person. And that really comes out here in the next part, doesn't it? Because the disciple whose life is turned upside down by Jesus expresses humble consideration, generous care, and then finally merciful compassion. How often are we like James and John again? We see the wickedness of the world and in righteous indignation. We want to see God strike down that politician, strike down that, that drug dealer, strike down that person and that group and this and that and the other. And we want to see God's judgment rain down on the wicked like it rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we hear of natural disasters in, in certain places, we think, well, that's God giving his judgment over to those people. And we almost revel in it at times. Can I ask you, is that the character of a life that's been transformed by Jesus? Yeah, pastor, that shows that I do love Jesus and I care about the things of God. Yes, pastor, that's my righteous indignation. 
Yes, pastor, this, that, and the other. What did Jesus do when James and John had that kind of attitude? The Bible says clearly, he rebuked them. And what did he say again? And I told you to mark it because it's, it's important. What did he say to them? Ye know not what what? Spirit ye are of. Now let me ask you a question. If Jesus rebukes them and says, you know not what spirit you're of, when it really comes right down to it, you can only be of one of two spirits. The spirit of God or... I think you know what the other choice is. In rebuking them, Jesus was clearly indicating, you're not of the Spirit of God. That's not God coming out of you. That's not what following me looks like. I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. have been turned upside down by Jesus what flows from us to a world that's lost, hurting and broken and dying isn't an attitude of yep that's what you get that's what you deserve because if we're honest we deserve the same what flows out of us is merciful recognizing that Jesus came for this world. He came for the broken. He came for the hurting. He came for the wicked. He came for the sinning. He came for the dying. Has your life been turned upside down? We need to submit to Jesus. Allowing God's spirit to turn our lives upside down. Today, maybe you are one who believes in Jesus. You're, you're one who would even profess to be a follower of Jesus. Has your life been turned upside down? Is it being turned upside down? Surrender today, right now to being turned upside down by Jesus. Because the reality is, if you aren't being turned upside down by Jesus, you can't participate in this day in turning the world upside down. The disciples of the early church could do it because they were changed. The disciples you see in Luke chapter 9 are not the same disciples as Acts 1, 2, 3, and so on. Oh, it's the same guys and same, same ladies. But they allowed Jesus to turn their lives upside down, and they went in the power of the Spirit to do a work for God. Go ahead and let God turn your life upside down. What he does in, for, and through your life will even amaze you, if you will. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. For showing us what discipleship looks like.
what a life turned upside down by Jesus looks like. And I pray as your spirit works in our hearts that you would help us to submit to you. Lord, if if we've been guilty of an arrogance such as demonstrated by your early followers in different ways in this text, help us to confess that to you and submit to you that you would turn our lives upside down. That these characteristics of humility, generosity, and mercy would be great greater in our lives. That we would go about sharing these with those around us. Father, right now there are those of us who need to surrender ourselves to that process of being turned upside down. And I pray that you'd help us to do so. For the one who doesn't yet know Jesus, I ask that you would open their eyes. With heads bowed and eyes closed, the pianist is playing, and maybe God is speaking in your heart today. If you're a follower of Christ and you need to confess and commit to the Lord today to do so, let's stand to our feet with heads bowed and eyes closed as God's Spirit moves. You need to respond to the Lord today. Come find a place at that this altar. Find a place there. It doesn't really matter where you are. You can respond to the Lord where you are, as you are. And God will respond to you. And then I, I speak to the one today who may be here in this place or watching, listening online, and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Friends, listen to his message. He came not to destroy men's lives, but to save. He came to this world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, certainly you must know that we live in a broken world, broken by sin, broken by arrogance, broken by selfishness, broken by wrong. And Jesus came to correct that. He lived the perfect life you can't. He died the death you deserve, not to condemn you, but to save you. Who will give their life to Jesus today? If you don't know Christ as your Savior, right where you are here in this auditorium, watching or listening online, would you respond to his love, his mercy? Say, thank you, Lord, for coming for me. I believe you died for me. You were buried and rose again. Forgive me of my sin. Give me new life in Christ. And if you'll do that in faith, he will respond. He'll save you and give you new life. Would you believe today?